Ready to get into the word? Yeah. All right. Uh, let's start with this guy, Protagoras, first of all. Epic beard. I mean, just a great beard. And I think we can all appreciate a good beard. Amen? We can all appreciate a good beard. Amen? All right, just work with me. So Protagoras said this around the 5th century BC, a man is the measure of all things. Now, I, I agree that man thinks he is the measure of all things. That much I can agree with. And uh, this faulty premise, though, is the basis for what our world has become. And essentially, that's not really a great thing to say. And we've been in this series, Here I Stand, we're locking down some doctrinal truths, some things that we believe. And in the first four messages of this series, we actually established something quite different than the man, that man is the measure of all things. In fact, in the first message, we got the Word of God opened and we talked about the authority of God's Word. In messages 2, 3, and 4, we looked at the Trinity, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And in those messages, essentially what we, say, what we said was, not man is the measure of all things, but, but God is the measure of all things. Uh, and so we come from a very different starting point. And now we come to this message on anthropology or the study of humanity, and um, we, we come to this and we understand there can be no meaningful study of anthropology of what we're about unless you first lay the foundation of God being the measure of all things, the authority of his word and who he is as God, as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so having done that, established all of that, we now turn to our study of of humanity, and we might think as we do this, you know, what does the Bible have to say about that? We think of the Bible initially and, and probably foremost as a theology book, in other words, speaking about who God is. But the reality is that the Word of God was written by God to us to fill in a massive gap that existed between the two of us, a communications gap, if you will, that exists between us and God. And God says as much about Him as He does about us in bridging that gap. In other words, this is very much not just a theology book, but this is very much an anthropology book, an anthropology textbook or study as well. The Bible says as much about anthropology, about us, as it does about theology or him. And in fact, I would argue there's no greater volume of study on humanity than the Bible. It speaks with great clarity on human origins, on the human condition, about culture and society, all matters of anthropology. And based on its track record, it forecasts with great accuracy the future of humanity. And so we're going to look at two principal passages as we lock this down. Genesis 1 to 3, obviously, as we speak of origins and how this whole thing got started. And then in the New Testament, we'll finish up the message in Colossians chapter 3, as we lock all of, uh, all of this down, what we believe about humanity. All right, does that sound good? You ready for that? All right, let's start with this. Uh, what I believe, a human being's bear of the marred image of God. That's our, that's our statement, uh, our declaration. Human beings bear the marred image of God. And we're going to unpack that in a moment, but understand how this, this foundational statement that we're making kind of sets us apart in the culture in which we live. It, it challenges the prevailing philosophies of our day in two principal ways. To say that human beings are marred is to deny the doctrine of this world which says that human, human beings are essentially good. And most of the people around you who don't believe in Jesus, they think that within every human being there's good and we just need to draw that out of them 
a people are essentially good people, and we just don't believe that. We believe that in the original creation, God looked at the creation, he said, this is good. And then sin entered it, and, and now all have sinned. And so we start from a very different a premise on that. And then to say that human beings are in the image of God is to say that there's a creator and to deny that human beings evolved. And both of those are provocative statements in our culture. And in fact, it's just so helpful for us to understand as the followers of Christ that when we believe this, both of these statements, this one overarching statement, we are outliers in our own society. And if we understand that going in, I think that's going to be helpful uh, to us. And so what I believe, human beings bear the marred image of God and why I believe it, four characteristics of human beings that we see in the Bible. Let's start with this one. Uh, humans are... Uh, created in the image of God. Obviously, the best passage to go to on the creation is Genesis 1 and 2. And uh, before I get into this, let me say for any skeptics that are in the crowd, what we believe about the book of Genesis, because there are a lot of different ideas, even among those who might call themselves Christians, about the book of Genesis. I'm going to tell you right now, it's not fable, it's not myth, and it's not allegory. What we're reading in the book of Genesis is what we would call theological history. And that is to say that God has selected events from history, factual events that did happen, and he's um, communicating to these to us for a theological purpose so that there's certain things that we would know about him and about us and about the creation that we live in. And so this is, um, these are factual events that we're reading here. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 is where we get our start as we try to lock down us being created in the image of God. Let me read this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Two very important words, image and likeness, we'll come back to. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So you kind of see it uh, said... Um, in prose, you see it said in poetry, the whole thing is emphasized for us in a way that we understand that we are created by God in his image. Now, we get more specifics about that in chapter 2 of verse 7. The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. This is different than every other creature that was uh, created by God. Um, he didn't breathe his life into anything else. He only breathed his life into man. And so as we're trying to kind of tick the boxes on uh, what constitutes the image of God, this is a pretty big one right here, that we have the breath of God uh, in us. Uh, even more specifically then in chapter 2, verse 18, uh, the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I was expecting an amen there from every man in the room, so I'll give you another run at it. Um, <laughs> Then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. <laughs> if I was your wife, I would not be impressed with that level of response. Um, it's not good that the man should be alone. Amen. Still not good. I will make, but we got to move on. But I will, make, I will make a helper fit for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, this is the whole point of this, okay? But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. 
So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. The rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called, whoa, man. I may have read that wrong. Um, because she was taken out of man. Uh, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall, be called, uh, shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Now, all of that to say, and we can't unpack every verse there, look at all the details of it, but we're trying to, again, lock down what it means to be in the image of God. And one of the things that becomes clear from this is that in male and female together, the one flesh that's created, you have a greater picture of what the image of God is. That on his own, man is incomplete in terms of picturing who or what the image of God is. So that's why God said it's not good that the man should be alone. And that's why he made him a helper that was fit for him so that there would be completeness to this. In all the creation, nothing was found for him. It had to be something unique something suitable that reflected in a more complete way the image of God. Thus woman was created from man. Now before we go on here, and I feel like I just need to sidebar on this for a moment as we think about how God created and what he did here and, and uh, the fact that in man and woman who are one flesh, you have a picture of something that God is trying to communicate. And before I say what I'm going to say, I've taught extensively on this, uh, several years ago, and uh, we are trying to create a loving grace environment among the people of God here. Not a single person in this room believes that they have arrived in any way, and we're all trying to journey just so carefully with one another. And it's so easy when you start to dive into matters of great controversy in our culture around us for people to hear the wrong things, and I just want everyone to know that we love everyone, we're all on a journey, no one's perfect. And, and we want everyone to come here and just really be exploring what God is saying to us every single week. But having said that, I, I need to communicate a truth to you from this passage in light of some of the things our culture believes. It, it, it's so clear to me from the text that God created two genders, not more than that, that it's not fluid, that gender is binary. And as difficult as that is, and I understand the pain that's often associated with that, and as we deal with that, and many of us in this room might know someone who's struggling around those issues, we just need to understand this is the way God had it from the creation. In addition to that, it's super clear, and for those who are struggling with same-sex attraction, that sin is no worse or no better than anyone else's sin or uh, the difficulties that anyone else's, the challenges anyone else is facing. But please understand that from the creation, this is the way it is. It's male and female, and in the male and female becoming one flesh in marriage, you have the picture of the image of God. It's not easy things to say to some who are wrestling with those matters in their own lives, but it's a loving also to tell the truth, isn't it? And uh, we need to hear the word of God on all of this. And so we're trying to uh, see what the image of God is and to say that humans were created in the image of God. What, is, what are we really saying by that? What constitutes the image of God? What makes us different from the rest of the creation? We're going to come back to those two important words, likeness and image, they really speak to the same thing. Uh, they're stacked uh, together here for emphasis, for variety, to give us kind of different nuances of the idea. There's no real distinction between the words. They can mean a shadow, resemblance, reflection, or a tangible 
visual reproduction of something greater. And so what we're really saying in this, when human beings are created in the likeness or the image of God, we're really just saying that, they, that human beings are a visual representation of something, someone greater. That's what the image of God is. And that's really, when you look at Genesis and you're trying to figure it out, that's really as specific as Genesis gets with it. It seems right to say, though, as we look at ourselves and look at God, that, uh, as Gerhard von Rad said, the whole man is created in the image of God. The whole package of who we are is the image of God in some way. In some way, the physical aspect of who we are, the mental aspect, the relational and social aspects of who we are, the moral and spiritual aspects of being human, they're all ref reflective in some way of the image of God. Louis Burkhoff said this, um, the early church fathers, this is the generation of leaders and theologians who came after the apostles, the early church fathers were quite agreed that the image of God in man consisted primarily in man's rational and moral characteristics and in his capacity for holiness. This is something that doesn't exist in the rest of creation, not in the animals. It doesn't exist. They're not concerned with holiness or with moral characteristics or in rationality. In fact, maybe I could illustrate it this way. We, um, we've never been a pet family. We've never been good at pets. Uh, we've uh, taken several runs at having pets. And when we were first here in Barrie, we uh, bought a, a hamster for our kids. And um, his name was Buddy. And as uh, our son Joel would often say, um, his name was Buddy, but he was no one's friend. And uh, his uh, whole goal in life was to bite whomever came closest to him. And it would be safe to say that Buddy had no concern whatsoever for matters of holiness. <laughs> he, he, he didn't have any conscience with regard to his moral character because he bit everybody, and that seemed to be rather ungodly to me. And so your cat or your goldfish is not concerned with rational thought, your Cat or goldfish is not concerned with moral character. The animals operate by instinct. And so that's kind of the difference in having the image of God or not. That we're concerned with our moral character. We're concerned with matters of holiness. We think in terms of these rational thoughts that drive us toward God. And at the end of the day, if all of that is still not clear enough for you, if we could boil it down to one thing that makes us different, that, that compels us to see that we're created in the image of God unlike anyone else, anything else in the creation. John Piper says it this way, the image of God is that in man which constitutes him as he whom God loves. God didn't send his son to die for the animals or for the creation. He doesn't love anything else in the creation the way he loves his special creation of man and woman. And so it comes down to the simplest of assurances that nothing else in creation gets. Something you and I learned a long time ago, if you've been hanging around the church, you'd even be aware of this. The one thing that we were told as children to sing and to say, this is the thing that makes us the image of God. Jesus loves me, this I know. Jesus loves me. This I know. And so we are in the...
image of God, created in the image of God. And then secondly, see this, we are given dominion over creation. We're given dominion over creation. Back in Genesis 1.26, we read this already, let them have dominion. 2.15, God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. There's a sense in which humanity was given a job to do even before the fall. 2.19, we read that whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. He was given charge over the creation in terms of the naming of all of the animals. And then along with that comes this command in 128 where God says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. Be fruitful and multiply is part of having dominion. In other words, and I just want to commend the young couples here at Harvest for fulfilling this command to be fruitful and multiply. And a particular shout out to those who have had twins. We call them the Genesis 128 overachievers who are doubling their obedience before the Lord. Tyler and Megan in the back row right there, smiling right now, but often it's just deer in the headlights for them. But God bless all those who are fulfilling this precursor to having dominion over of the creation. Well, all of this is called the dominion mandate. And essentially what it says, it was given to Adam prior to the fall, and it's essentially, okay, Adam... Humanity is in charge of the creation. Now, I don't know how in charge you feel over the creation as a human being, but the long and the short of it is that sin marred this creation, and so the dominion thing's a little harder today. That if we're really thinking we have control over it, we really don't, not in terms of we can't stop a hurricane or a tornado or a tsunami. So we don't really have dominion over anything like that. We haven't stopped death and decay, so we don't have control over that. And the most dangerous animals in the world are still a danger to us. In fact, the most deadly animal in Africa is the smallest of animals, and we can't control it, and it kills so many, the mosquito. And so I'm not sure how much you feel in charge of anything or how much the dominion mandate is really a true for us today but we should talk about it and see how this actually would play out if we're in an uh, in an unideal world the world we do live in how does this play out for us and it's a delicate discussion again given the strength of animal rights activists and how they would see this and environmental activism in the world on the one hand you have right wingers who are oil men and hunters and who exploit the earth and 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 take out all of the resources and make money and sell the stuff to us and the left wingers are tree hugging whale saving protectors of the earth resources often without regard to how it might affect the economy or people global warming advocates insist that their hypothesis is legit and many scientists would also say that we're simply in a historic cycle of warming that we're at facing the ongoing effects that the earth has been warming since the end of the last ice age. And I, of course, you know me in science, so I'm not prepared to get into all of that and certainly not qualified to speak to any of these things, but they accentuate the problem for us. We have dominion. We have control over the resources of this earth for good and for ill. That there are positive aspects to this and very negative ones as well. And at the end of the day, what the dominion mandate really speaks to is stewardship of the resources that God has entrusted to us. Will we take care of the creation? That's really the question. Will we take care of the, of the creation? So the dominion mandate means this. 
I wrote down five things. There could be more than this. The first is this. Use the earth's resources, but use them wisely. God put those resources there for us to use, but use them responsibly. Use them wisely. Again, the mandate is to steward or to manage this. If God made it and he owns it, we want to make sure we're not exploiting it. Secondly, discover, examine the earth, examine the universe. Said earlier in this series that scientific research is the pursuit of how God did and does it. And so we need more people who love Jesus Christ, who are submissive to the authority of God's word, who will enter into the sciences and will explore this great universe and this world and come up with the answers with the premise being, God made this, I'm trying to figure out how he did it. I'm trying to figure out how he's holding it all together. And those two things are not incompatible. So discover, examine the earth. Uh, enjoy it. Here's the third one. Enjoy the creation. Experience and explore what God has made. And when you're in the midst of the creation and looking at what God has done, thanking him for it, everything from God, you made this family, and it's awesome, and I thank you, and you made the mountains and the ocean, and I thank you, and uh, praising him for the sunset and the sunrises. Enjoy the creation. Fourth, on a very different track than that, good government, peaceable societies. We enact the dominion mandate when we seek good governance, when we seek the welfare of our city, when we want our country to be a great country, when we contribute as citizens to the communities and the countries that we live in. And then Really, the starting point for that, for good government and peaceable societies, is number five, strong marriages and raising our children well, is all part of the dominion mandate. And of course, all of that, having established that now, all of that is made so much more difficult because the creation and humanity are, see this next, marred by sin. Marred by sin. Well, over in chapter 2, verse 17, the parameters of Eden were set up. God creates this perfect creation, and he places Adam and Eve in the garden to enjoy this, but then he sets out kind of a limit on them. He says, you can enjoy everything that God made. This is verse 16 of chapter 2. You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it, you shall uh, surely a uh, die. So pure was their condition, verse 25 of the same chapter says that the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And I don't know if you can imagine a world where there's no fear, you're not afraid of anything, there's no guilt over anything you've done, no shame over anything that's happened to you. I mean, I would say to you, imagine such a world, and I just feel like we can't even get there because our entire life has been filled with these three things, guilt, fear, and shame. We don't know what it's like to be free of that, but Adam and Eve literally understood what it was like to be naked and unashamed. No fear, no guilt, no shame. But by chapter 3, verse 1, the wheels begin to come off, and we don't know how much time is lapsed between chapter 2 and chapter 3. We don't know if that's hours or days or months or years or decades or centuries. We're not a certain, of course. And then chapter 3 records for us at some point the serpent, who was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made, said to the woman, 
Did God actually say? That's his whole MO right there. Challenge the word of God. Challenge what God has said about things. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the, tree, of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. What's the problem there, right, right there? That last line, God didn't say that one. It was about eating, not touching. So Eve's now adding to things God said, lest you die. That part God did say. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, lie. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, having, uh, knowing good and evil. True. See what's happening here? A little lie, a little truth. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her dork of a husband who was with her, passively standing by, not leading his wife, not putting a check into the system, not challenging anything that's going on, just standing there like a dork, and he ate. I have opinions about Adam. <laughs> then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. Guilt. Fear, shame, we're going to see it. It all floods in in a second. And they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves a loincloths. And see, when the dust settled, they knew that their world had changed. Everything had changed. The perfection of Eden had been shattered in that perfect, awesome relationship that they had with God, the face-to-face, -face, completely natural relationship with God had been severed. The woman and the man thought, you know, we're going to be like God. We're going to know good and evil. And it was absolutely true. They would, and they did. And it wasn't great. It resulted, in fact, in what Romans 8.22 says is the whole creation groaning under the weight of sin. Now, if I ask you to imagine something, you can imagine that. Because you experience it in your own lives every single day. The weight of living, of life, of this world, of the pain that people are experiencing. That's the groaning of the creation. And in the midst of the beauty of it, in, in the beauty of a new child, in the beauty of, of the physical creation that we get to look at, of a sunset, we look at the beauty of all of that. But in the midst of it, such a difficult place with so much heartache and sorrow. G.K. Chesterton helps us with this. He said, the odd thing about original sin is that it's the one Christian doctrine which is not mystical, but a plain piece of rational experience. In other words, in this series, for example, we've started with talking about the Word of God, and the reason why we think that the Word of God is authoritative is because the world, Word of God tells us that it's authoritative. In other words, even in the doctrine of the Bible, it's still rather mystical because it's, it's self-evidence. When we talk about God the Father, we talk about Him, but no one here has ever seen Him. Jesus walked this earth, but when we talk about the doctrine of Christ, we all realize we haven't seen him. 
We didn't witness the things he did. We didn't hear the words he spoke. We didn't see him crucified or resurrected. We talk about the Holy Spirit being right here, that our own individual lives are a temple of the Holy Spirit, and this church is a temple of the Holy Spirit. We speak about that, but no one's seen the Holy Spirit. Evidence of him, but not him. And so all of these doctrines, everything from the Word of God through the Trinity, all of it is mystical. But the one thing we have so much evidence for is sin. It is a plain, what did Chesterton say? A plain piece of rational experience. Lots of evidence. Right in our own lives. All you have to do is look out the window. Or around your own dinner table. Or in the mirror. And it's a plain piece of rational experience. Ecclesiastes 7, 20 and 29 says this, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. See? This alone I found. That God made man upright. He was made perfect. He placed him in the garden. It was awesome. But they have sought out many schemes. We look for ways to sin. Pastor Roger, biblical soul care, kept in business because we're looking for so many different ways to sin. It's our natural bent. Now, I think we all know this. I think we all understand that we're marred by sin. But still, I feel like we need to be reminded in my small group on Tuesday morning, someone said this this past week, I don't remember who it was, said, it takes a little while to figure out you're a sinner. That's, it struck, in the moment, it just struck me. Because the older I get, I'm, I'm 53 now, the more acutely aware I am that I'm a sinner. Not that I haven't always known that. I have. But the longer you go on, the more intense you realize the battle is, the more sin you commit, the more you realize you needed Jesus and His grace, the more awesome you understand forgiveness uh, by God to be. That doesn't lessen the longer you walk with Christ. It increases. The deeper and deeper... I go into this, the longer I live, the more the battle seems clearer. And the more clarity I get about that, the more I come to understand my need of Christ. And I long for the day when we get back to the perfection of Eden, when I don't have to imagine anymore what it feels like to not have fear, guilt, or shame. Created in the image of God, given dominion, marred by sin, and offered restoration. Humanity is offered restoration. And I, I put offered there intentionally because you and I have to opt into this or, or not. From our perspective, when it comes to salvation, we choose to follow Christ or not. We choose to believe Christ or not. I mean, you can, you can come here and have your ears tickled. That was a very interesting thing he said today. I really had a good time with those people. The coffee was good. And off you go untransformed. Interesting, but unchanged. And so this is an offer. God's putting it in front of you. 
Would you opt in? Would you make the decision, I'm going to become a follower of Jesus Christ? Because God's intention is to restore us, to give us the option of being restored. He's going to improve the original creation and offer us a place in in this new heavens and new earth that he's recreating. This is the whole heart of God in the critical sequence of events that led to sin entering the world and the aftermath and consequences of all of that. We actually picked this up in Genesis 3, 8. God's making a way for us to be restored. And so they heard the sound, this is verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. How awesome would that have been? Just hang out with God. They lost it. Well, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees of the garden. That's the shame. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Is that a, first of all, did God not know? And, and it's not, by the way, it's not a location slash geography question. It's more of a relational moral question. Where are you? What have you done? And he, Adam said, I, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And here comes the fear. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he, God said, who told you you were naked? God knows the answer to all these questions, by the way. Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, okay, little men, okay, act like men tonight. There's a little bit of marital advice coming up right here, okay? Just tuck this one away. The man said, the woman whom you gave to me, okay, there's really two problems there, the woman whom you gave to me, okay, gave to be with me. She gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. A blame shifting. Verse 13, Then the, so the Lord turns his attention to the woman, said to the woman, what is this that you have done? Well, she takes her lead from her husband, finally. Uh, the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Uh, the devil made me do it, is the other way of saying that. And she doesn't want to take personal responsibility for what she's just done. So a ton of trying to hide it, blame shifting, excuses for why this all happened. And then in verse 14, we begin to see the consequences. God moves immediately to level curses upon them because of their sin. It's really the curses that sin brought upon them. So the Lord God turns his attention first to the serpent, Satan, and he says to him, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Turns his attention to Eve in verse 16. said to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. You can just write in the margin there, domestic strife from now on. Marriage is just going to be hard. And even if you love your spouse unconditionally. Marriage is hard. Then he turns his attention to Adam in verse 17. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, because you were passive, because you failed to lead her, and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain 
You shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till, listen, you, you want to know why work was hard last week and why it's going to be hard this coming week? <laughs> right here. This is part of the curse. Work's always going to be hard for us. Well, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So, you know, that's the way to solve the work problem. Die. So you see all these curses that are being leveled against them. The whole human race is now affected by Adam and Eve's sin. Verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was a mother of all living and the Lord God made for Adam. Remember, they're wearing, uh, they've got these leaves and they made um, coverings for themselves, leaf clothing. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Understand what's going on here. The creation was perfect. These animals were um, the creation of God. And they were beautiful and enjoyed by Adam, and he had named them all. And God killed an animal, his creation, to create these clothes for them and then compelled them to wear them so that they would be reminded of the consequences of their sins and all of this a foretaste, a foreshadowing of the death of Christ, that death would be the only way that redemption would come, that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. Adam and Eve are beginning to understand the weight and burden of everything that's happened. The Lord God said, verse 22, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat it and live forever in his sin, cursed by all of this, with no chance of restoration and redemption. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. God was going to make sure that restoration was actually going to happen. And the key promise in this, now in this list of curse, and I don't know if you've noticed it, but in the list of curse that God pronounced against them, there's also a promise buried there. And in Genesis 3.15, you have the very first mention of the gospel. You should have this verse underlined or marked in your Bibles, Genesis 3.15. He says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to a Satan here. Between your offspring and her offspring. Now, who's her offspring? Eve's offspring is, ultimately, it's all of humanity, but it's, it's Jesus. The offspring of Eve is, is Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the promised one. And he goes on uh, to say here, um, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Yeah, you're going you're gonna to nip at humanity's heel. You're going to bite them. There's going to be pain. There's going to be consequences. It's going to hurt. There's going to be sorrow. But it's not fatal because I'm going to provide a way of restoration. But the offspring of the woman is going to bruise your head. And that is fatal. The fatal headshot that defeats Satan, that defeats sin, and defeats death. That offspring is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. 
And in Jesus Christ, we find hope and restoration. It's offered to every one of us. And so will you opt in and give your life to Christ to get started on that restoration? And if you've already made that decision, have you established what you believe about humanity? And would you now declare how I'm living because of it? These are the implications of what I'm seeing in God's word. This is how my life is changing. Nibiru said this, man has always been his most vexing problem. My most vexing problem is not Satan. My most vexing problem is not the world system influencing me. My most vexing problem is me. Your most vexing problem is you. The problem with human beings is we keep tripping over ourselves. We are our own worst enemy. And understanding all of that and being compelled to live out our lives for Christ. We understand the battle so hard in doing that. And so Paul frames this up for us. We'll spend the rest of our time in Colossians chapter 3. You can turn over there now. Colossians chapter 3. Paul frames this up for us in the first few verses. And he says, if then you have been raised with Christ, you've opted into restoration, you've said, I believe, you're following Jesus, you've given your life to him, however you want to say it. If then you have been raised with Christ, that one-time decision to follow him, Paul says, seek the things that are above, ongoing sanctification, ongoing restoration in our lives. I want to seek the things that are of God, not of this world that's marred by sin. And verse 10, he lays it out, being renewed or restored, notice, after the image of the creator, after the image of Christ. That's what we're trying to get back to. What's the image of God? How can I get back there? Paul lays it out for us. And we do this, first of all, by putting off the old self. There's an old man who's tainted by sin, who follows the ways of the world, who gives into his own flesh. That old self needs to be put off. There are things in my life that are not consistent with the image of God. Anybody else have that problem? There's some things in your life that are not consistent with the image of God. Well, I want to rid myself of those things. So Colossians uh, 3, 5. We actually want to put to death these things. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Ready for a little list? Sexual immorality. A very broad term for any kind of sexual activity in my life that is outside the parameters of what God says is appropriate. Impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness. I want what other people have. Why don't I have that? He says that's idolatry. We've actually made a God out of that. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And in these you once walked. That was once you, when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. You say, well, I did pretty well with that list. I, none of my things were on there. Paul has more. Notice what he says. Um, anger, wrath, malice. That's, a, that's a, a downward spiral of my anger getting out of control and becoming worse and worse. Slander, 
Because I just have to say bad things about other people. I have, to, I have to make you think bad things about them so I feel better about myself. Obscene talk from your mouth. Don't, don't lie to one another. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Do we hit yours? I don't even think that list is complete. There's way more. The point is that there are things in our lives that are part of this old self that need to be put off and put away. We need to stop living the sin-tainted life. We need to face our temptations and resist them. The old self is so, so strong, so insidious in our lives. Because as much as we've tried to crucify it, it still rears its ugly head. We think it's dead. I'm done with that. I'm not going back. I've made my commitment to Christ. I'm resisting temptation, and it's back. Where'd you come from? And we're facing the temptation to go back into it again. And so we lust, and we lie, and we lose it on other people, and we leave people injured with our words, and we look only to what benefits ourselves and not others. We have to be relentless in our battle with the old self, and it's only going to happen if we do some very strategic things. None of this is surprising or will be surprising to you. I'm going to give you four bullet points here. The first is we have to agree with God, admit it's sin, and confess it. So taking the lesson off of Adam and Eve, listen, no hiding it, no excuses, no blame shifting. This is my sin, I'm owning it. I agree with God about it. Secondly, I'm going to saturate myself in the Word of God. So I'm going to believe its truths rather than what the world is telling me or Satan is telling me or my own flesh is telling me. I'm going to saturate myself in the Word of God. I'm going to use those scriptures to battle temptation in the same way that Jesus used those scriptures to battle temptation. Third, I'm going to call out to God in desperate prayer. I want to have that regular prayer time when I'm, I'm always talking to Him. When the temptation comes, though, I need that emergency prayer, that help me, God, right now. And then fourth, I need to surround myself with people who are just as committed to being done with the old self. Listen, if, you, if all the people around you are just like apathetic about this and they don't care and they're not committed to being done with the old man, then don't expect that you will be. But if you get around some people who are just as committed, I need to put off the old self. There's things in my life that need to be gone and, and, and you're committed to each other and so you're reminding each other of the right scriptures and you're praying for one another and you're holding each other to account and you're walking this journey together. You're doing it together. You're finding people who are just as committed to authenticity and transparency and vulnerability. You're finding people who are just as committed to uncommon community. That's the only way it's going to happen. The only way you're going to be able to put off the old self. Well, that's half of it, okay? If we're going to live in light of being the image of God, the second step here in renewing the image of God is putting on the new self. We put off the old self, we put on the new self. Verse 10, we kind of looked at, put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Okay, renewed in knowledge. i got to know the word. There's that saturation of the scriptures again. Here, there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. 
One of the first characteristics of, of, uh, that Paul mentions here of us putting on the new self and, and being committed to having the image of God in our life is that there's no hint of racism or prejudice of any kind in the body of Christ. That if you're a true follower of Christ, you're seeing every single person, regardless of color or language or nationality, you're seeing them all as image bearers of God. And therefore, in the church of Jesus Christ, listen, we need to be leading our city and leading our country on matters of race. And there needs to be such oneness in the body of Christ not that this church would be a reflection of the demographic that's in our city, but that we would be a church that is leading the warmest place, the most welcoming place for people of any group, any race, any language. There's no room for racism or prejudice or, fa or being favorable toward one person or another in the church of Christ. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, check this out, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. See why this is a lifetime worth of work? Even that short list, that's a lifetime worth of work right there. Putting off and putting on. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you were called in one body, and be thankful. How am I going to make this happen? Paul lets us know, verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching, admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving to each other. What we just did together, this is helping us put off the old self and put on the new. And then whatever you do in word or deed, all-encompassing statement now, whatever you do in word and in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him, just as it was intended in the original creation. In other words, image bearers look and act more and more like Jesus the longer they walk with him, putting off the old self and putting on the new self, becoming clearer and clearer representations of who he is. Here I stand on humanity. Amen?